we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received the reconciliation. I read a statement um, a few months back. It really shook me. The statement said, the difference between your spiritual growth and Adolf Hitler is negligible if you compared your relationship to Jesus Christ. The relation, your spiritual growth and Adolf Hitler is the difference between the two is negligible if you compared that to your relationship with Jesus Christ or compared your life to His. Now, that was enough to shake me up, but the next statement finished me off. The next statement said, and every man is called to be Christ to his neighbor. Now, if you put all that together, and if a person really is called to be Christ to his neighbor, some people have a hard time seeing Christ. As a matter of fact, if this is true, and if there is no real um, difference between our spiritual growth and Adolf Hitler when you compare it to us and Jesus, then people have a hard time seeing what Jesus is like. Now I believe that there are two kinds of Christians. There are some Christians who are always looking for trying to get things from Christ or something else from Christ. And then there are those Christians who understand that they already have everything in Christ. And there is a vital difference. When you're saved by grace, God gives you the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him you are complete. So that when you possess Jesus Christ, you possess all the things that pertain to life and to godliness. If Jesus were to paint a picture of you tonight, a portrait of you, you probably wouldn't even recognize it. Jesus would paint you complete, you feel incomplete. Jesus would paint you as an overcomer, you feel overcome. Jesus would paint you as having riches, you feel poor and destitute. And I believe that a person will never get very far in spiritual growth in his Christian life until he comes to grips with what he already possesses, when he begins to appropriate, when he begins to possess what he already possesses. So that the real issue tonight is not what do I need to get from Christ. The real issue is how much do I know that I already have in Christ. And that's what the book of Romans is doing when we come to this passage. Let me just for a, for a minute review what we've discovered up to now. 
The Apostle Paul describes the lostness of man and the condition of a man outside of Christ. And the picture is not a pretty one. Man is depraved and separated from God and, and the result of that is his total depravity. And then he comes to describe how a person can be rightly related to God. In that marvelous third chapter, he talks about being justified by faith, having the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus. And that verse is chapter, in chapter 3 is verse 28, which is really the, the hinge on which the book of Romans pivots. And he says that we have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and not by the good things which we have done. And he comes to chapter 4 and he illustrates that in that marvelous illustration of the faith of Abraham, how he was declared righteous because of his faith in Jesus. And now he comes to chapter 5 and begins with the word therefore. And, and, it, and, he, and, and whenever you see that word therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's it there for? And so he comes to chapter 5 and he, and he says, now on the basis of all that we have discovered in chapter 3, that a man is made rightly related to God through his faith in Jesus Christ, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us those things that we have in Christ, those things that you and I need to discover that we have in Jesus Christ. There are three things. The first is that we have peace with God. Now he didn't say that we have the peace of God. He said we have peace with God, and there is a vital difference. The peace of God is not the same as peace with God. Peace of God is subjective. It's experiential. It's what a person feels. It's God's own being imparted to man. The peace of God is the experience that man has, it's what a person feels. Peace with God is not subjective, it's not experiential, it's positional, and it denotes relationship. You can have peace with God and not have the peace of God. Peace with God means that we have been brought into a position to receive the blessings of God. Now let me say parenthetically, that there are some people who fear or think that they don't have peace with God because they don't feel the peace of God. Now you can have peace with God, you can be saved and not have, not experience God's kind of peace. I mean, you're cheating yourself, but that's possible. And some people fear that they've never been saved because they don't feel the peace of God. Now peace with God is kind of like a, like a two-sided coin. It has a negative and a positive side. The negative side is this. When a person has peace with God, it means that the war, the struggle, the strife, the battle between that man and God is over and peace has been, has been declared. Uh, Mr. McDaniel shared with me some films that he recorded. It must have been back in the 60s. It was a black and white television, 
Walter Cronkite was young. It was on this 20th century, this document, documented program, of six hours of documented uh, programming about World War II. I've been watching those when I get time. And, and I've learned more about what went on in the war than I'd ever read in history or anywhere else. I, it's amazing. It's horrible. War is hell. I've been watching this, and I, I can imagine, I can understand why there was so much um, exultation, so much joy when peace was finally declared. And the armistice was signed, and the war is over. I tell you, it's a good day when man discovers that God is not his enemy. And something happens there in his life, and there is, then the strife is over, and the struggle between man and God ceases. That's the negative side. The positive side of peace with God is that man is placed into a position where he can receive the blessing of God. Now what happened when the war was over between uh, America, United States, and Germany, and Japan? Well, when, when the uh, armistice was declared and the peace treaty was signed, then we began to pour money into those countries to reclaim them to reconstruct them and to, uh, and to recover them. They was ravaged and destroyed cities. And so when the war was over and, and, the, and the enmity was settled, then that put those countries in a position to receive our resources of wealth and, 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 and good care and goodness. Have you, have you ever read that little book? Some of you read that little book called The Mouse That Roared. It's the story about a little post postage stamp country that these people were poor and destitute and didn't have any money, so they, they hit on an idea. They declared war with America. Fought about one day and then surrendered. Got all this foreign aid as the result of that. And what happens when a peace with God comes is that, that now man is placed in a position to receive from a person he, whom he considered as his enemy. So Peace with God is, is relational and peace of God is experiential and you can lose your fellowship with God but the relationship is never lost. Now secondly, we have as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that we've been justified by that faith, we have position and grace. Look at verse 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith. Now that word, if you've got a King James, is access. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And the word is, is, is really the idea of being introduced into the private chambers of a king. Let's just suppose that there is some third world country. They're able to see on television or read in, uh, in, in newspapers and periodicals and they're able to see how wealthy we are in America. And we, they, don't, they have you know, hardly enough to eat, no places to live. And, and so they try their best to get in this country. But they need a bridge and they need an access and they need someone who will speak bridge or span the, the, the gap, the span the difference, span the distance between their country and ours and not just introduce them into our life but to literally bring them into our life. 
That's the word access. A few years ago, I, I experienced this from a negative perspective. When I was pastoring in West Texas, we had a Spanish mission, and we had this pastor of this Spanish mission that, you know, I noticed he was gone quite a bit, but I didn't think a whole lot about it. Small little church he pastored. One day, two men came to my office, well-dressed men, introduced themselves. They said they were um, they worked for the INS, the Immigration Naturalization Service of Texas. He said, we have you know, reasons to believe that the pastor of your Spanish mission is a caute. Now, I thought that was a little brown, furry animal that, you know, it ate chickens and stuff like that. He said, he said and, 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 he, and he, he defined what a caute was. As a person who goes down into uh, another country, like goes down to Mexico, and he finds these nationals down there want to come to Texas or come to America, and so for a, for a price, he, he brings them in. And back then, it wasn't you know, that much going on. They, uh, uh, so he, he'd go down there in his van, had a big old van, probably furnished by the church. And he'd, he'd go into Mexico, and he'd load up these... Uh, nationals, these uh, Mexican people, and he'd, for a price, he'd bring them into America. He was a caote, he was an access. He introduced them in the sense of this text, that's a neg in a negative way. Now the Apostle Paul says that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes the access into grace. And through him, he says, you stand in this treasury room of grace and God says, help yourself to my grace. Now you don't have a very, you're, 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 you don't have very uh, much of a command of the word of God if you think that grace in the New Testament only refers to the initial act of salvation. There is living grace and there is saving grace and there is dying grace. And I need grace to forgive those that have hurt me. And I need grace to love this person who is unlovely. And I need grace to endure this trial. Grace, you know, we need grace for life. And Paul said, this is what you have in Christ Jesus. You have one who has introduced you into the treasury room of God's grace who supplies every need for your life. As Lindsay says, grace is the friendly disposition of God which kindly acts. We have positioned grace, finally. We have prospect of glory. Now he talks about in verse 3, beginning verse 3, he talks about this um, exaltation that the Christian uh, enjoys in, a, in an ascending scale of value. First of all, he says that we exalt, and that word means to give high fives. I watched a little of the championship football game today, and I saw a lot of high fives going on, people exalting. If I was going to the Super Bowl and make a million dollars, I'd probably be giving some high fives too. If you want to give me some, I'll give you a high five. You know, give me a, give me a million. And he says that we, we exalt in, 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 in the hope of future salvation. He says we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now this word hope needs some defining. It's not 
you know, where you cross your fingers and just, you know, wish that it would come, come true or wish that it will happen. The word hope there means confident expectation, joyful anticipation that is grounded in certainty. It's as though it were a certainty and I can rejoice in it even though I may not possess it now. So he says that we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. It's a hope, it's an it's a exaltation of the hope of future salvation or future glory. Now I want you to notice an interesting thing with me. Turn over to chapter 8 and look at verse 28 and following. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. Notice it's in the past tense. These He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. That's in the past tense. And whom He justified, and that's those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, these He also glorified. That's in the past tense. So this hope of glory that's found in the fifth chapter, in the eighth chapter, is the same hope of glory, is the same glory that He talks about in the past tense. Now watch this. Have you ever noticed that when the Bible wants to speak about future events and wants us to be sure, wants us to know the certainty of those future events, he always talks about the future in the past tense. For example, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he talks about this one who would bear our stripes and be wounded for our transgression, and he talks about that as though it had already happened. He talks about the future suffering of Jesus, and he uses the past tense. Now, some um, uh, critical uh, analysis of the, of the Bible have caused some to say, well, there are two Isaiahs, two authors of Isaiah. It's called uh, Deutero-Isaiah. And, and, and the reason why they say that is because when you get to a certain place in the book of Isaiah, he, he, he talks about those things which were yet to come when Isaiah was written as though they had already happened. So they assumed that there was an author who wrote after Jesus died and, and put it together with Isaiah chapter one, chapters 1 through 40. That's not what happened. What happened is that when God is speaking about this future event, He wants us to be so sure that that's going to happen that He puts it in the past tense. Now, you can, begun, you can begin to exult in what you're going to experience in heaven. You can start doing that tonight because that's so certain He uses it in the past tense. I'm so certain that I'm going to heaven because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I can already begin to celebrate that. 
is so certain to happen. Now, when the Jew heard that, he couldn't, he, he couldn't get a handle on that because to the Jew, getting to heaven was something that's going to be determined on how well you lived and how much you kept the law. And so Jesus comes to... Paul comes to say when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can already begin to celebrate heaven. It's as sure as it's already, you're already there. Now, the next step up on the ascending exaltation is that he says we can exult in our tribulation. You've seen anybody giving high fives because they have trip trouble? Anybody giving any high fives lately because you've been able to suffer? Notice that the word we exult in our tribulation is the same word we exult in our anticipation of heaven. Get that. A child of God is somebody who can exult in tribulation the same way he can exult in his hope of heaven. Do you have different degrees of, of rejoicing? Sure do. Let's, let me show you how different degrees of rejoicing occur. Let's suppose tomorrow you had enough money and you went down to Roger Michael Motors and you bought you a new Cadillac, cherry red, loaded. And you drive that baby out of the parking lot and I mean your heart is pounding. I mean you've got, you're behind the wheel of a cherry red Cadillac, fully loaded, paid for, and you just cruising down Maine, hoping somebody will see you. When you get down to about night, some turkey on Ninth Street misses the red light and plows in to the side of your cherry red Cadillac. You've driven it about equivalent of 10 blocks. You got degrees of rejoicing? <laughs> you sure do. I don't know anybody that's gonna jump out of that red Cadillac and give high fives. Sure strange, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul says that because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, there are not even any degrees of rejoicing. My thought concerning tribulation and suffering gives me the same joy as my thought of the prospect of heaven. Now how is that possible? Well, look here. Just look at it. He says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Now this is how a person can exalt in, in, in tribulation because he knows that tribulation works that consistency of life and that consistency of life works character that has been tested and proved and when that character has been tested and proved God puts his seal of approval on him like Good Housekeeping magazine and you can go in life you can go through life with God's seal of approval on you that'll make you exult in tribulation I lived out in the country when I was a kid growing up. My mother didn't drive, so she let me drive some before I was 14. Back then, I could get your driver's license when you were 14. I was driving, looking under the steering wheel, you know. 
couldn't even look over the top of it. I'd go to town, take mother to town, do a little shopping. Daddy would be busy in the field. Just, I mean, 10, 12 years old. And we'd park, go down to back alleys of the big city of Monday and park about one of the back alleys and get out and walk, you know, do our shopping and get in the car and head home. One day when I got my 14th, and my 14th birthday came and I went down there and I took the test and got my driver's license, I got the seal of approval on what I was already doing. Now you can serve God and you can live for Christ and you can have Christian character, but when you have been tested and when tribulation comes and pressure comes and you have the same attitude toward the pressure and the tribulation as you do toward the thought of heaven and you have that same kind of faith and attitude, you get a seal of approval that marks you out and puts you in a different category from just the average Christian. No wonder you can exult. Then he moves up to the third level of the scale and he says in verse 11, but we also exult in God. This is what he's saying. He said, we get real happy when we think about the future of heaven. And we get real happy, I mean super happy, when we consider the fact that this tribulation of life is going to get me the seal that marks me as a uniquely qualified to serve God. But the thing that really gives us the greatest joy is that we know God. Listen to me very carefully. You're not going to make very much headway in the Christian life until you stop glorying in the blessing of God and just glory in the blesser. I think I was sharing some things this week with somebody that, that, that I'm trying to learn in my own life. That, that one of the things that we really, really get excited about in prayer is the answer to prayer. And, and you, you, you hear people give testimonies and they will give a testimony of the wonder of the answer to prayer. And if we aren't careful, the answer becomes more important to us than the answerer. You understand what I'm saying? And if we're not careful, what God gives us, the gift of God, becomes more desired than the giver of the gift. So the Apostle Paul says, the thing that causes us to exult is the fact that we can just know God. See. So I shared with my Sunday school class this morning there's old Jacob meeting God alone by the river Jabbok. And he's struggling with this man he wrestles with. God, really, he's struggling with God, wrestling with God. And the, and the issue is, you know, who's going to win the wrestling match? Who's going to be the victor? Who's going to be the, the Lord there? And, and Jacob makes two requests of, of, of the man with whom he wrestles. He asked first for a blessing 
And that means he asked for something that God would do in his life that he could not do himself. And the second thing is the most significant. He asked to know his name. Now, now why would Jacob ask to know God's name? Because Jacob knew that a person can receive the provision of God and not have the presence of God. And one can get the blessing of God and never know the blesser. We do it all the time. Let me tell you something. You can have every provision of God, but if you don't have His presence, that person who knows God in the reality of His dynamic presence and has no provision is better off than you are. So Paul says, our exaltation comes in the fact that we can know God, that He's not just somebody who lives somewhere off in the wild blue and just kind of pulls strings like a puppeteer. We can actually know Him and talk to Him, and He talks to us. Not only can we say things to Him, but we can hear things from Him, like the old Buddhist proverb says, what is the sound of one hand clapping? What he means by that is, what is their prayer if it's just one way? Now, I want you to turn. I'm going to quit, and I'll give you back. How much did I say I'd let you have back? Got to hurry. 1 John chapter 2. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, and I just want to mention one thing, and then we're out of here. Beginning at verse 12. Well, you've ever seen this or not, but I want you to see this right here. Look. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him. Now, he's not talking there about children, young men, and fathers in a, in a uh, biological sense. He's talking there about levels of maturity. And there are four levels of maturity. He said, I'm right, I write to you little children, you little babies, because about all you know of God is that you have been forgiven of your sins. And he moves up to the next level of maturity. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. So the ne next level of maturity is that you know God kind of like a child knows his father. He just kind of expects him to take care of him, and that's all you know of him. And the third level of maturity says, I write to you, young men, you've gone beyond the childhood stage and the baby stage because you've overcome the evil one. But then he comes to the highest level of maturity, and he says, and I write to you, fathers, you mature people, because you know God. Now let's put it in the context of chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says, when you reach that level of spiritual maturity, 
that exalts in God. So that just knowing Him and fellowshipping with Him and talking to Him and having Him talk to you is the joy of your life. You have reached the level of spiritual maturity. We have in Christ peace with God, position and grace, prospect of glory. Let's thank Him. Father, we're so grateful that in Christ Jesus we are complete. Help us to discover what we possess in Him. And in the discovering of what we possess in Him, the realization that even trials make us mature and that maturity is measured by our knowledge of God and our fellowship with Him. We pray for this decision time and these moments of invitation for I pray in Jesus' name.